Reading from Ephesians first, chapter 3, verse 16, it sort of dips in the middle of the sentence. It says, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may live in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled, with, filled up with all the fullness of God. And the other passage is Acts chapter 2, just two verses, because what happens is that the Spirit falls on them in the beginning of Acts 2, and they have this incredible uh, manifestation of God's power and presence with them in a variety of different ways, and Peter stands up with the other 11, and with the 11, and raises his voice and declares to them, men of Judah, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and listen to my words. For these men are not drunk, which is what you think. It's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning, essentially. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2, and he quotes it. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Lots of banter around who dreams and who has visions in terms of the age split. But be that as it may. First thing to note for me here in terms of this is that dreams and visions and prophecy, prophecy are normative. If we are experiencing the presence of God's spirit within our lives, then these are the expectations we have a range of different things which we say are the expectations. And in some senses, and I just want to say this as an aside, there are all kinds of manifestations of God's presence when he comes in power and um, the Spirit of God rests upon people. But it's interesting for me that it's dreams, visions, and prophecy that are actually mentioned in this particular moment. We looked at prophecy, so I want to look just briefly at dreams and visions. Going back a number of years, Gail woke up one morning having had a dream where she was literally fighting with the headmaster of a local school. And her brother had been at that school and she was saying to him urgently, but John is dyslexic. Now, this is going back many years, before it was kind of a well-known thing. And so she phoned her mom, and at this stage, John had been expelled from two schools. And when Gail asked him in later life, why were you so naughty at school? Partly because he couldn't read, he said it was better to be the naughty kid than the stupid one, because he thought he was stupid because he couldn't read. And she phoned her mom and said, I've had this dream, and this is what the dream is, that I'm kind of taking on the headmaster because John is dyslexic. Anyway, I, I won't give you the whole saga, but they took John to a different province because there was nowhere in the area that was able to assess whether he was dyslexic or not. And they found that he was. He had 
kind of a, uh, um, they, they looked at it. And he turned out to be an incredibly successful businessman who has his own, well, he's, he's passed on now, but he had his own factory, his own business. It was a dream that God gave to Gail of instructing what the situation was. Some years later, we were in a situation where there was, we, we had gone to a, a congregation where there had been enormous difficulties and we were in the initial stages of trying to sift through them and work through them and there was all kinds of cross currents within the congregation and God gave Gail another dream of this white horse in our driveway and an incredible peace came over her that God is on the throne and he is the great white stallion who's actually going to sort all of this out. It was a dream of comfort. A sense of peace pervaded. And we had this assurance, this sense again, that God was in it. Fast forward another bunch of years and I'm in Maine, Portland, Maine. And I... Um, fast asleep and I dream of Gail and the girls in the car and there's going to be an accident. I can actually still, if I close my eyes, visualize how, how vivid it was for me. I can picture the road, the bend, the bridge at the bottom of the ravine and I woke up with this thing thousands of miles away. No cell phone or anything like that. And so I did what I could. I prayed. It happened to be when I found out later on from Gail that she was driving from Cape Town to East London, which is about an 11-hour drive, with the girls. And it was in the middle of that whole drive that God had woken me up and had prayed for their protection and their safety and everything. It was a warning dream. We need to take dreams seriously. There's a variety of different dreams. And if we look in the Old Testament, dreams are normative. Ian's already mentioned Joseph and Daniel. We're not going to go over all those dreams. We're not going to go into detail. But dreams are normal. Do you pay attention to your dreams? In the New Testament, just think of this, just one small fact. Joseph has a dream. And God says to him in the dream, take your, children, your child and your wife and go to Egypt. Why on earth would you go into a foreign country with a child that's just been born and is young and take your wife where you have no means of support? Why would you in response to a dream? Why would you go to Hong Kong just because you had a dream? 10 out of 10 for that local vicar who said, go. And then Joseph is in Egypt and God gives him another dream and says, okay, it's time to go back. We need to understand that in our Western secular culture, spiritual things like the unconscious, the dreams that we have, even we can talk about all sorts of things. When I'm talking about dreams, I'm actually talking about visions because in the scriptures, they're essentially interchangeable. And we're not talking about the Martin Luther King, I have a dream kind of thing. We're talking about what God gives to us in those moments when we are not consciously looking for something. Dreams are 
important. And often with dreams comes the whole thing of angels. Now, there's a whole subject entirely. Billy Graham wrote a whole book on it. But the issue is that it's often that it's in these dreams that these uh, people from Jacob and Joseph all the way through have visions of angels. Angels are real. They are there. They are all around us. I'm just telling you a few stories this morning. We were, we, we, we were, we went, um, we were sent by the Assembly of God to a little congregation. Um, we had a, a house that was fairly separate from other houses in an area where there was all kinds of stuff happening at night. This house had louver windows that were pretty much all broken. You didn't need a key. If you lost your key, all you had to do was remove a couple of these glass slats on the louver window and just pile in. We'd been married a year or two and we had Sarah as a little baby. And there was always stuff going on outside in the road in the front. And we, we, we had evidence of people around the house. It wasn't safe. And one night I woke up with a, a real sense of a presence, of, of, of there being someone there. And I woke up, I got up, and I went to the front. We didn't have money for curtains, so the whole front of the house had no curtains. And I came into the lounge, and at the front of the driveway were these two probably 12, 15-foot columns of light. And it was just amazing. I saw no definition, but I said to go, come and have a look at this. We were confident that God was looking after us. We knew that there was a sense, I mean, you could have hopped over the wall anywhere else. It was only about this high. But the point is that it was this visual image of at the gate of the house, there is this protection that God gave us. Now, that's not to try and say that we've been filled with the Spirit, therefore we have dreams and we see things like this. I'm suggesting that we ought to be living in this kind of way, that we pay attention to our dreams. We dream. Now, you need to discern whether it's a dream like this or that, and that's what we need each other for, and we need to share our dreams with each other. And there are some people who are better at actually saying, this is what this dream means, or it could be that. And sometimes it is complicated, like Daniel's dream, and we have to say, God, we don't know what this means. You need to show us. Not all dreams are equally significant. But the, the thing that I want to just simply raise this morning is this. God speaks to us in dreams and visions. Do we respond? And Ian's thing this morning is that there was Jackie Pullinger. She had a dream. She responded. There was, uh, what's his name? Cook. Dave Cook. And he, res he, 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 he actioned what actually had happened. When I had that, that terrifying dream of the kids and girl in the car with the accident, the first thing was I was out of bed and I was on my knees next to the bed praying. It, it, it's, it's real, guys. We need to pay attention to this part of how God speaks to us. We have been so schooled 
in the fact that God speaks to us through the Scripture, even in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, with prophecy. But we leave dreams for the Jungian psychologists. And it's not good enough. God speaks to us through dreams and visions and even with angels. Now, there is some horribly flaky stuff out there, let me tell you. So don't just take anything that you see or read or hear on the internet or in the book. We need to talk through this with each other and we need to, as community, help each other to discern and to interpret what God is saying and what God is doing. The other thing that I think is important, and I'll just say a few words about this. Pete Gregg, in this particular chapter of the book, talks about our consciences and the way in which God speaks to us through our conscience. Now, we are all um, sentient human beings. We have a conscience. We respond by working through that. And it's possible for us to have a conscience that is sensitized or that we are, are allowed to be um, dulled and brutalized by what goes on around us. There are just two quick stories from, from my life. The one is I get a phone call from a man who says to me, he wants me to come and bless his casino. So I said, I think we should have a, a conversation. Now, Tony, Tony had asked me to bless other things, which I'd happily done. He was a, a new Christian, a young Christian. He was in his late 50s, a man of exceptional wealth. This was just one of his ventures. He had two or three casinos, and this was a new one that was being built. And he said to me, come and bless my casino, that God would make it fruitful, and that it would, be, it would really be prosperous, and we will give the church 10% of all the profits. Anyway, we had a conversation, and uh, I said, generous offer, thank you, but no thank you. And I told him why, and we talked through it, and it was a, a whole process. And to his credit, about 18 months later, he had divested himself of all three casinos. We need to action and take... You see, Tony, Tony had grown up in a certain way. And what was happening with his conscience is that he, it suddenly got pricked by something. He saw something new and different. And he, 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 it didn't, he didn't sort of drop those things instantly. He had to work his way out of them so other people weren't hurt through the process. But the point was that it was something that God spoke to him. And it, it really touched him and it changed him. For me, there was another thing, too, and this is, um, I, I, I grew up, obviously you know that I grew up in apartheid South Africa, and um, 
exposure to um, what was going on came in my late teens because we were we grew up in a tiny little bubble. And I went to university and became um, again like Tony. I was sensitized to a thing that was going on that was not. I was not capable of actually endorsing. And got involved with um, some, at that stage I didn't realize how radical some of the students were from Fort Hare University, which was a black university. And when Steve Biko was imprisoned, we marched together, um, all sorts of things happened. Anyway, I'm, that's, it's, not, it's not about that particularly. But we, I was involved with band institutions, uh, Bayer's, Nordea, um, people who were on that side of the spectrum from the white part of South Africa. And for my trouble, I was marked by the secret police. And one day I was showing a group of um, high-ranking Presbyterian ministers around Durban, where I was at that stage. I'd just taken them to the Archbishop for a, a tea and an interview. Um, Dennis Hurley at that stage was one of the um, prime movers in terms of anti-apartheid stuff in South Africa. Um, he was one of the guys initially who got Desmond Tutu on the go. And I came home, I was driving a, a brown high ace ugly vehicle that was hardly even, I mean, it was just just going. And at night I pulled it into where I was lodging, into, they locked the gates, we locked the gate, high fences, locked the gates, locked my vehicle, went inside. The next morning I came out and every single thing in my car, in the high ace, from the boot, from the glove compartment, everything, was neatly lined up on the passenger seat, and my car was still locked. I tell you lots of stories like that, and threats, and all sorts of other stuff. And even when my girls were just about ready to go to high school, the secret police were still opening my mail, they were still tapping my phone, all that kind of stuff. But you know what it's like is that you're a young student, you've got no attachments, you are, but then I got married. And then I had children, and then I had a job, and I had responsibilities, and I had all these things going on. And the, the sense of, for me, urgency perhaps in terms of all that kind of drifted. And I thought, when one's talking about your conscience, and you, it's, it's a very sensitive way in which God speaks to us. And it doesn't take much for us to be, um, what's the word in, in the New Testament where Paul says, seared, your conscience seared. And the more you let your conscience, the more you, the more you shut it down, the less active it's going to be. The more you respond to this inner voice, which is what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church. He's saying, 
I, I pray that you would know all this deep love that God has in your inner being, in your inner person. And I'm, I'm appealing to us as good, solid Western Christians, number one, to recognize the fact that God speaks to us not only through the scriptures or through the preaching or through, but also through our dreams and visions. And maybe even, as the writer to Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 2, you know, we should show hospitality to people because sometimes you, you will entertain angels unawares. Gail and I have a, a real sense of having experienced that. But also through this quiet inner thing. It may not be a visual thing or a picture or a vision or angel standing in front of you like on the day of Jesus' resurrection. It may just be that quick tweak which says, uh-uh, or you ought, or you ought to, that we respond to. The more we respond to this inner voice, this conscience, the more we are sensitized, the more we live in a way that gives us the capacity to, to make our way through life in terms of the moral, moral and ethical difficulties that we face in a way that is honoring to God. We hear his voice and we respond. We've spoken about the prayer of examine and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but this is one way in which we can constantly on a daily basis bring ourselves back to a moment of reflection where we, where we look to see. Now, Lectio 365 has this as a daily routine, and it's about stopping for a moment to reflect, to reflect in, in a way to, to look and rewind the tape of the day like a movie, and to begin to see what actually happened. Where did I see God? What happened? How did I respond in that? Why did I respond in that way, in that situation? In other words, we are able to reflect on the situation. A time to say thank you to God for his presence within our day. Because we begin to see the marks of his presence in all the different things that we're involved with. Also, a time to repent. I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I think that in, in the Reformed churches when we tossed out confession as something that had been bastardized, we tossed out the baby with the bathwater. And confession and repentance in, in sort of evangelical Christianity is something that's just not there. And I think to spend some time with examine to say, sorry God for what I thought when somebody said this or did that. Sorry for what I did. Sorry for what I didn't do today. And then a time, and I think I love the way that um, Pete Gregg says this in terms of examine. It's called rest, but it's got a bracket of an E. So reset, rest and reset. At the end of the day, to say, this is the beginning of my new day. Let me just rest in you, God. Speak to me, in, maybe in a dream, maybe something else. But, but let me just rest into your presence, that it resets me. Again, I don't want to speak like this, but it, it resets the parameters of your day as you move into it. 
in those last days which we're in, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, your sons and daughters will prophesy. If we want to be followers of Jesus, Ian and I were talking about it this week, we're not, we're not here to, to get to heaven. We are here to bring heaven to where we are, wherever we go. And that's what this does. It sets us again each day with an understanding of while I'm sleeping even, God speaks to me.